You're listening to Mr. Open Banking, the only podcast dedicated to exploring the open banking movement. Whether you're a financial expert, banking executive, or everyday consumer, open banking affects everyone and will change the way we interact with our money. I'm A.L. Savan, your host. This episode is brought to you by Axway, leaders in enterprise integration for over 20 years. In the first episode of our new season, we explore the intriguing subject of digital identity, a critical facet of open banking. Digital identity is data about you, who you are, what you've agreed to, who you trust. It provides a way to verify that you are who you say you are, and a way for you to agree to things. Some people even argue that your digital identity includes everything you say and do online. As you'll hear from our guest, this isn't that far from the truth. To truly understand digital identity, you must drop the digital and think of the naked concept of identity itself. Who are you, really? Can you point to a list of attributes that make you, you? Are the traits on this list really yours? If you look closely enough at identity, is there even anything there? Getting identity right is critical to open banking. After all, the ability to verify people's identity is what makes the whole ecosystem secure. Being able to pull together accounts and transactions is indeed powerful, and moving money instantly across those accounts adds rocket fuel. But without a way to check who people are and what they've agreed to, you have nothing at all. So, making open banking work becomes largely a question of identity, making it a fitting subject to open Season 2 of Mr. Open Banking. Matt Sakimura is considered one of the foremost global experts on the subjects of identity and privacy. He's known for his work at both the OpenID Foundation as chairman of the board and at the Nomura Research Institute as an identity and privacy standardization architect. In his 30-plus year career, Nat has penned some of the world's most widely used open data standards and strives to help communities understand and organize themselves around innovative ideas of identity and privacy. Nat, thank you so much for being on the show. You're welcome. It's my honor to be here. Let's start from the beginning. Why don't you define for us digital identity? For me, digital identity actually is a set of attributes about an entity. So the entity can be a human being, or it can be a machine or other things. But when it is a living human being, that thing is also known as personal data. When a lot of people talk about personal data, it seems like a bit of an abstract thing. You might feel that uh, you're safe, that you're, you haven't actually disclosed any of your personal data or your attributes, but that may not be true. Your actions can actually be correlated and you know, brought into a coherent data set that will be linked back to you 
and your actions and your preference and, and, and many other things can actually be learned from that. So as long as it is actually a data which can be linked back to a single individual, we treat it as personal data. There are those who would say the very term personal data is a bit of an oxymoron, that data is data. Data wants to be free. There is no such thing as personal data. What would you say to that? I guess that person is taking personal as something of the possessive, in the possessive sense. That actually is not the case. We're just talking about something that can be linked to a person. A lot of data, like the fact that you bought something at an internet merchant, is actually linked to you. Your browsing behavior is also linked back to you. It's interesting that you use the term linked back to as opposed to owned. A lot of dialogues around personal data come back to this word ownership, but that's not the word you use. Is there a difference between linking data to me and owning my data? So the English word owning has multitude of meaning. Some people use my data in the sense that I own the data. I possess the data. When you think about it, you actually can't establish your the property right type of ownership against uh, information because it can be copied without diminishing. And when it comes to something like personal data, you usually don't have absolute right over the data. For example, when I disclose my location data, saying that this is my data, I own it and I control it, you actually need to consider something else as well. When I'm, for example, traveling with my friend, if I disclose my location data, then the person at the other end, the receiving end, can also learn that where my friend actually is. So I'm also disclosing my friend's location data. And do I have a right to do that? Do I have ownership of that? Probably not. So using the word ownership, or I own the data, is kind of dangerous. That's why I usually use linking instead of owning. Fascinating. Let's try a different word, the word rights. Another dialogue happening out there is, do people have a right to their data or even a right to privacy. How do you feel about the question of rights as it relates to data? I don't have any problem with the word right there because right is actually relative. And most of the right is not completely absolute. It has to be weighed against other rights. So I do have rights to many of the data that is linked to me, but so does others as well. So there's that dichotomy again, the difference between data and property is the more you copy and paste and reuse data, 
the more valuable it becomes, unlike property, which once you use it, it's gone. It is zero sum. So how do you reconcile that with rights? Our structures of laws and rights are built around the zero sum structure, which is to say we can't both own a piece of land or a piece of property. But with data, as you described, that's different. How can you build rights around that? It's more like copyright. So um, you have copyright and you have economic right around it as well. And the music, for example, can be copied many times, but the value of itself doesn't diminish. Although we began the interview with a question about identity, we quickly shifted to the concept of personal data. The word personal seems to imply that you somehow own this data, that you can possess it. But Nat explains that's impossible. You can never truly own your personal data because it is inherently linked to others, just like it's linked to you. And because it's linked to you, you should have certain rights, including an economic right to any value generated by that data. Just like an author or a songwriter would have economic rights to the data they've created. However, at the heart of all that data we create remains this core of identity. It seems like there's something there that's ours and yet not. How can you have data that is both protected and shared? Nat has spent decades trying to solve this difficult problem of how best to maintain an identity in a digital world. He and his colleagues at the OpenID Foundation are creating a new layer of the internet, an identity layer, which will underpin all of our digital identities well into the future. I asked Nat to tell me about the foundation and what they aim to achieve. OpenID Foundation is a boutique standardization organization which is committed to create internet identity layer, so to speak. When we say internet identity layer, it's a technical facility which allows an individual as well as you know, corporations and governments to manage how your attributes are being transferred to another party or expressed to another party. So we are committed to create the internet identity layer, which allows individuals, corporations and governments to manage how oneself is expressed via sets of attributes. So for example, when I'm expressing myself to another party, then I'll be sharing some of my attributes, my data, to the other party. And I need to control which one is going to be expressed at which point in time. So that's essentially what OpenID does. I can run my own identity provider, and also I can draw some data from other parties. 
the internet identity layer is completely distributed and in ideal, each piece of data is going to be maintained at the source of origin, the authoritative source. The open idea as a protocol ties them together. In a fully distributed way. It sounds like you're saying then that my personal data isn't stored in any one place. It's distributed all through the internet. And the OpenID protocol gives me a way to bring it all back together under a common identity and create that single view of all of this distributed data. Do I have it right? In one way, a single view can be a dangerous word because I, and like many other people, maintain many identities. The identity is not a single thing. My identity towards, for example, my employer, my identity towards my wife, towards my children are all different. We expose different sets of attributes or actions in each context. So single view may be a, not a good word, but you know, I understand what you meant. We probably want to you know, draw these data into some coherent set and make a coherent set of identity in that particular context and provide that to the other party. Imagine an internet identity layer. Faculty built right into the bones of the internet that allows you to maintain digital identity in a fully distributed way. An identity that exists in many different relationships and contexts, but all linked back to you and all in your control. Which brings us to open banking. On the show, we often like to say that what makes open banking different from other open data movements is that it has to do with a very special kind of data, your money. If my social media data falls into the wrong hands, I'm frankly not that surprised and not that worried. But the moment I hear that all of my banking transactions are being traced, well, now I'm really worried. The fact is, we rightly expect a certain degree of protection when it comes to our money. That's why the standards created by the OpenID Foundation are so crucial to open banking efforts around the world. They define how customers are identified and how they agree to securely share their financial data. Here, Nat tells me more about how the OpenID Foundation is helping to enable open banking, including a tour of the various standards they've built. Are OpenID and your efforts tied to open banking directly? Yes. So OpenID Foundation has a working group called Financial Grade API. And that working group is specifically working on the higher security level protocols for doing these identity transactions and API protections. And it is actually being used as the base security protocol for open banking in UK and Australia and other jurisdictions 
are also looking at it and considering whether it can be incorporated into their jurisdiction. The Financial Grade API, or FAPI, very much being adopted as a de facto security standard in the open banking world, but part of a larger stack. We do have some more technical listeners. Let's take a quick tour of that security stack that the OpenID Foundation has been working on. The bottom of that stack is OAuth 2, not strictly developed by OpenID, but the base on which OpenID is built. Nat, what is OAuth 2? So OAuth 2 is an access delegation framework and the protocol. It allows you to delegate the access to an API. It's just like creating a special purpose key for the safe that you have so that that person can only perform that action. The next layer in the stack is OpenID Connect. What's OpenID Connect? So OpenID Connect builds on uh, OAuth 2 to create a protocol which allows a party to express who is the user online to the other party. Then the next layer above OpenID Connect is FAPI, which you described earlier, the financial grade API. Can you give us a brief, more technical explanation of what FAPI adds to the stack? So OpenID Connect actually provides various levels of security. In the simplest case, doing elaborate security stuff can become an overkill. What FAPI actually does is to constrain all those options to the options that can support the highest security scenario. So as long as you are uh, sticking to the options, you're pretty much safe in the transactions. And then more recently, another layer was added, SIBA. Can you describe what SIBA is? It actually deals with the cases where the user is actually not online directly. For example, when you call call centers, uh, you probably are not dealing with the, the bank's internet interface, but just on your phone, right? And many times the call center agent will ask you, let me identify you, tell me your date of birth and blah, 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 right? But that's a very, very not safe way to actually identify that person because many of the, those data are known by other parties. So we need to get a safer way of dealing with it. And SIBA is exactly like that. So instead of asking your date of birth, the call center agent can send you the push notification so that you can authenticate yourself. And you get the push notification on your smartphone. And so that's what client-initiated back-channel authentication, SIBA, means. And between all of these technologies, you offer a way to authorize and authenticate in a distributed manner. So no matter whose services I'm using, it's always using the same standards, it's always using the same mechanisms, and those mechanisms are secure. What's next? Are there elements of this stack that are still missing that you have on the roadmap? 
I've been working on this for quarter century and there are lots of ways to go. One of the things which I'm working on these days is to make distributed identity more usable. In the beginning, I explained that the data which is about me is going to be maintained by many other parties. And that is true right now, but it is actually quite difficult to manage it effectively from the single interface that I control. So、uh, that's what I'm working on right now. You don't hear the word claims outside of technical circles very much when talking about open banking, but you certainly hear the word consent a lot. What is the relationship between a claim and the notion of consent? Generally speaking, when we talk about consent or grant, is almost the same as agreeing to give access to some of your data. Interesting. You equate consent with the notion of a grant, like I'm granting someone access to my data, right? Right. So, controlling consent. Is almost equal to controlling what claims you are agreeing to provide to the other party. But it could be as simple as I claim that my name is AL. And then the grant says, I grant my bank access to my name. And all of that wrapped together forms this more abstract notion of consent. Which isn't really a technical attribute, it's more just a way that people talk about these claims and grants. And these claims and grants are attached to an identity. Yes. Actually, so those claims constitute part of the identity. Is there some other part that isn't made up of claims? Would it be accurate to say, All of my claims out there in this distributed environment brought together, that would constitute my identity. You're almost talking like there's the identity for you, right? In this world. But I, I'm actually not so sure about that. If there is no such thing, then the proposition actually degenerates. Fascinating. It- Seems to come back to our earlier discussion around relationships and context. Almost like there is no such thing as my single identity. It all depends on how you look at it and when it's being used and how it's being used. And it's only in those moments that this fragmented identity exists. Is that closer? Yes, that's very accurate, I think. As you've heard, the efforts of the OpenID Foundation have become critical to the success of open banking around the world. The standards under its care have become the foundation upon which real world open banking solutions are built. The stack we explored, made up of OAuth2, OpenID Connect, FAPI, and SIBA, has become the gold standard for open banking readiness. Putting Nat and his team right at the center of the action. With these standards, 
banks can build powerful consent mechanisms using well-defined technical constructs like claims and grants to securely manage who has agreed to share what with whom. However, it's not that simple. Nat is careful to remind us that context is everything, and the notion of identity is ultimately relative. So how is identity to be managed in such a fragmented and distributed way? To be honest, the world is still figuring that out, as banks, governments, and giant tech companies all vie to be your favorite and perhaps only identity provider. That's where Nat and I pick things up. If you look around the world, different countries are taking different approaches to this question of managing identities for their populations. Some regions take a more technologically driven approach and corporations are really leading the way as identity providers. Other regions have created federal digital identity schemes. Do you think one approach is better or worse than the other? So like I said before, there's no single identity. There are identity for governments. There are identity for corporate use. There are identity for, for example, social media use and so on and so forth. People tend to forget about that. And when you look at a national, quote-unquote, national identity system, they tend to think that is the identity system. But that's actually not true. That is the identity towards your official or governmental use. In some countries, the government actually provides those. Countries like in United States, there's a... Uh, philosophical opposition and friction towards that and it looks like it's not possible but then doesn't mean you cannot build your relationship with the government obviously and you could use other measures like identity provided by private entities isn't there a tendency towards monopoly though where certain corporations or governments stand up and say, I am the identity provider for all services because I'm really good at managing your identity, whether that's Google or Facebook or Apple or Alibaba over in China creating super apps. So how do you avoid all of the identity services gravitating towards a few providers? So digital technology is naturally exhibiting the diminishing cost characteristics. It is a natural tendency to create the monopoly or you know, oligopoly kind of situation. The bigger gets more cost-efficient and grows faster than smaller ones. And if governments actually embarks on the national identity system, that can also be the case. Also, they can never be the authoritative source of the claims for everything, right? Unless they you know, completely take over the world. That's not possible. Do you think that 
by moving to national identity schemes. People are protected in some ways from privacy invasions from social networks and other private companies. Well, I don't think so. The privacy violation actually comes from the use of the data and just replacing the privately run identity system with a government run identity system doesn't change the situation. In some cases, many people actually fear that in having too much data accumulated that the government is even more dangerous than having that in a private company. That is certainly the case. In many places, people trust their governments even less than they trust social media networks. It seems like I have a choice between trusting my government with my identity and trusting social media giants or other private digital providers with my identity. Is it really down to that stark choice? I don't think so. The unfortunate situation right now is that there's not much choice to entrust your identity controls. If there's an identity provider that you trust and the identity assertions created by those you know, trusted identity providers are accepted everywhere, just like in the case of Google and Apple and these giants and governments, then, you know, people have that as a choice. You could even run your own identity provider on your phone, right? That's the importance of standardizing these things. If they operate on the same interface, then it will cost less. Let's try and bring that to the practical world in the context of open banking. One of the advantages to cash is its ability to support anonymous transactions. A lot of those who lament open banking say, well, now the government or the corporation, let's say you trust neither, is going to see all of my banking activity. I don't want anyone to see that banking activity. I want to remain anonymous. Is there really a way to maintain the kind of anonymity that I get with cash in a digital world? There certainly is, but then you lose certain protections as well, just like in cash. And also I'd like to dispute that if you are actually remaining anonymous when you're using cash, so if you actually use a wallet kind of system, which can provide anonymous digital money, then you can do something quite similar to what you do with cash. But then in that case, if you lose that device, the money is gone, just like cash is gone. So many people nowadays carries less cash and carries credit card. And the credit card is by no means anonymous. But they are opting to use that to get more protection. Sometimes you want to remain completely anonymous and for that transaction you may take the risk of losing your money. But that's okay, right? And sometimes I think it's usually the case you want to have some kind of protection to get the protection 
you can't remain fully anonymous. Fascinating. So you're saying you can have your anonymity, but you're going to lose some of the convenience and benefits and protections that come with giving up that anonymity. Let's say I still trust no one and I want to get completely off the grid from an identity perspective. There are solutions out there, it seems. One term you hear about is self-sovereign identity. Can you describe what self-sovereign identity is? Self-sovereign identity is a concept which allows you to maintain your internet identity that is created by yourself and will not be thus revoked by any party. For example, if you're using identity given by big identity providers, they can always ban you and you lose the account and with it, you lose the, all the relationships that you have built. It's the same with the government. Sometimes government tries to delete your records, like when you became a refugee or something like that, and then you lose all those relationships. The self-sovereign identity is different from that because you created a key pair. You create the identity that you interact with other parties yourself. So it's not going to be revoked. Philosophically, and maybe I'm being paranoid here, it seems like everyone should move towards some form of self-sovereign identity. It seems like a great way to protect myself against those I do not trust, whether that's a social media company or a government. Yeah, but then at the same time, you have to also recognize that most of the data about you, you are actually not the authoritative source. There are other parties who are authoritative source of the respective data. What you actually maintain as a self-sovereign identity is the very core property to express that it is you. So the self-sovereign identity and, and decentralized identity system is a fascinating idea. And I believe that we should go to that direction. But at the same time, I want to you know, manage the expectations. Do you see open banking as an effective lever to help drive adoption and education of identity management and consent management? Yes, because whether you like or not, if you start using the banking services in the open banking context, you will be exposed to that framework. And, you know, people will learn the thing in the concrete actions much better than in the abstract. So that's an excellent educational opportunity as well. In the context of open banking, Let's use an example. My banking transactions. If I follow, my bank is the authoritative source, the identity provider of my transactions, but they aren't the authoritative source about these core elements, such as my name and date of birth. What are these core attributes that make up who I am when you think about it, 
you actually have to doubt if data, even your name, actually really belongs to you or you control it. We tend to talk about name as being innate to you, but it's usually the case that it is the registered string at the government. At that point, that particular string's authoritative source is the government record and not you. Then there are other aspects about name. For example, I call myself that Sakimura in the English world. That's not my registered name. That is controlled by me and I am the authoritative source. It seems like, to a certain extent, this diffuse, distributed notion of identity doesn't exist in any fixed form, that everything related to my identity seems to be contextual. So even something like these core attributes are relative to, well, which language are you talking about? Which government are you registering the name with? What family do you come from? You could go as far as to say, even seemingly fixed attributes like my genetic characteristics are in the context of my family. Isn't there a bit of a black hole here where identity diffuses into nothing? No, identity is not diffusing. But identity is concept which is only be instantiated with a relationship and with a point in time. But that doesn't mean that it diffuses to nothing. So uh, let's say the identity is abstract notion which only gets embodied in, in a particular context. Wonderful. Nat, where can our guests find out more about you, your work at the OpenID Foundation, and your efforts to support the open banking movement? So uh, come to openid.net. You'll see a lot of information about what we are doing as a standardization organization. And also if you come to my website, nat.sakimura.org, you'll find a lot of link to the valuable information in this respect. Thank you so much for being on the show, Nat. It was great to have you. Thank you very much for letting me to be the part of your program. It's been a fascinating experience. Who are you? What makes you, you? Questions once reserved for the philosophical realm have now been writ real and need to be answered in the absolute language of computer code. Capturing our digital identity, the official expression of who we are online, demands that we claim certain data as our own while still being able to share it with others. Meeting this seemingly impossible challenge is the work of the OpenID Foundation. The standards they create, including OpenID Connect, FAPI, and SIBA, help answer these philosophical questions in a way that code can understand. Using their technical constructs of grants and claims, we can begin to capture the consent 
to share data in a strong, reliable, and meaningful way. No group has embraced these new standards more so than the global open banking community. Open banking is wholly dependent on digital identity. Without some mechanism to track and verify people's identity, the whole notion of a common open banking ecosystem falls apart. But is identity even real? Is it a specific thing that you can point to? According to Nat, identity only becomes visible under the lens of a particular context. Your identity towards your family, towards your bank, towards your government are all different, yet all are valid and all are real. Your identity belongs to you, but can only be seen through the eyes of others. Thanks for listening to Mr. Open Banking, the podcast that explores the ongoing evolution of open banking and its impact on our lives. Make no mistake, the rise of open banking is going to change financial services forever, and we will be covering that story every step of the way. This is your host, A.L. Savan. Until next time. This episode was made possible by Axway, leaders in enterprise integration for over 20 years and creators of the Amplify platform. To learn more, visit axway.com.